0: Hello, and welcome to the November edition of Cinetopia. I'm here, well, we're a a small group this time around. I'm here with Jim Ross, uh, the managing editor of Take One Magazine. How are you?
1: I I'm good. I think calling it a group is a little bit a little bit uh, a little bit optimistic. You know, two's company, I suppose. Though, so yeah.
0: well, I've been a bit busy. Um, yeah, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival just ended. Uh, Paul's been managing that, of course, for the last nine years. And um, it was. What, what did you think, Jim? I thought it was a fantastic festival this year.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, during the time that I've been paying attention to the the, the Edinburgh Short Festival, the the standard has been ridiculously high and really this year was no different um you know the prize winners which i think we might speak about they were all of a extremely high standard and it's kind of a it's kind of an indicator of the quality that they had, each had some pretty stiff competition to mm-hmm. be honest
0: yeah i mean uh, we actually sat down with the um the winner of the best scottish film uh tom gentle and you did an interview with him uh, tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah it was good it's um if you get the opportunity to seek that out it's a short film called in the fall and it's based upon an alistair mcleod short story uh it's been relocated from nova scotia to scotland and it's been done as a single shot and Interestingly, interestingly the film which won best scottish film and the film which won best film they were both single they they were both a single shot aesthetic one is an actual single take and then this one in the fall it's done a sort of like birdman children of men type thing where it's stitched together but it's really well done and more importantly both of them do something with it because it's quite in vogue to do long takes and you know it's quite showy but they actually do something which really adds to the, the story with it um so yeah keep an eye out for that that interview because it's a it's a very interesting short film it's very well done and well deserved of winning that award i think
0: yeah um and uh the other sort of things that was was going on this uh past couple of weeks uh we had an a symposium of film festival directors um, from all over Europe, uh, places like Sardinia Film Festival, Florence Film Corti, the Balkans Beyond Borders. And so it was a really nice. um, I got to see that program and also got to see the Q&A afterwards where everyone, all these directors sort of talked about all the reasons and how they choose short film, why they're involved in short film festivals to begin with. So I particularly really liked that as well as the... um, Texan shorts, which was um, programmed by the University of Texas's uh, head of department um Paul Steckler, and he had came over as well and you saw that as well Jim um, it was quite a a really strong program
1: yeah i'm I, you know, and some of them have won prizes like elsewhere outside outside of Edinburgh, so it's to be expected they're of a a high standard, but they really were really very good, really very good and just good storytelling really um and there were different types of story you know there was drama in there there was a comedy one at the end so a mix of documentary narrative stuff but they were they were uniformly all really pretty good I'm very impressed by it and I must admit it's not a it's not a film program that I'm aware of I think people more in the industry know than me are very familiar with it but I would definitely be keeping an eye out for other student work coming out of there um you know, because like, student film is often used as a bit of a pejorative, oh, it's a bit of a student film. Well, watch some of those and then continue to use that because really, really very good, very impressive.
0: Yeah, um, and as always, uh, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival is full of uh, fun nights afterwards, uh, discussing the films at uh, the Royal Dick Bar and in the Film House Cafe and a few networking things, including our beginning networking night, um... So, yeah, a really good time met a lot of filmmakers from around the world and um, and film, dir- you know, film festival directors. So um, great. Well done to Paul and the team. And, um, you know, look for the it's going to be the 10th next year. So there's going to be some more stuff for that as well. Moving on to our show today, uh, we have three films that we are going to be reviewing um monos by alejandro landis um which comes out well it should be out by now um in uk cinemas uh the next one is meeting gorbachev by werner herzog and andre singer um and the final one is the nightingale um which should come out on the 29th and that is by jennifer kent so we'll be talking about all of those films, plus Jim sat down with Paul Laverty, the writer of many Ken Loach films, and this recent one. Sorry, we missed you, so we'll talk a little bit about that film, and that's currently on in the UK as well. So plenty, plenty for us to talk about here. So uh, speaking of film big films that are coming out right now um the biggest one uh is uh most likely the irishman jim you got to see it somewhere like at the london film festival where did you see it
1: sort of i saw it at the i saw it at the the dundee contemporary arts uh the dca oh right, right, right. okay so it, so what it was it was fortunate it was so it, it got its uk premiere maybe even European actually, but certainly UK on October 13th at the London Film Festival. It was like the closing gala. And something they did which was quite interesting was they did basically a simulcast around the country to a bunch of independent cinemas where they basically started showing the film at the same time it meant that you need to put up some slightly tiresome red carpet gubbins beforehand instead of trailers but you know small price to to pay so yes i i was back in dundee uh that weekend and i went there because curiously there wasn't a showing of it in edinburgh uh Mm. fortunately edinburgh audiences will get to see it at the film house it's getting a little run there um but yeah for some reason it didn't have one of those on october 13th but
0: well it's one of those things it's that we we've We've gotten into this with this Netflix thing. There's very, very short runs, and it's sometimes very interesting where they get played, Netflix films, correct?
1: Yeah, it, it, it was curious. I mean, that one confused me slightly because, of course, in Edinburgh terms, the film house is basically the place to go for this stuff because, they, you know, they got screens of Outlocking, they got screens of Roma, because you've got that rule with picture house cinemas where there needs to be a exclusive theatrical window. So these films like um, The Irishman, Marriage Story, and you know a bombback one, that's a, another one which is with Netflix. Because Netflix naturally want it to move to streaming quite quickly, uh, albeit they want the theatrical runs for press and prestige, um, because they want to go there so quickly, it's never going to th- show up at the likes of the the Cameo, the, the Picturehouse chain, or any of the major... Um, any of the major multiplex chains it's always going to need a, a glasgow film theater or a film house or a belmont film house or something like that to show them it needs to be a either a small chain or an independence in them all together
0: yeah and we're, we were just talking that um there's probably going to be three netflix films that are really in contingent for some of the big awards this year Right, so it's Irishman is probably one of them, and The Marriage Story is that another.
1: Yeah, I think the, I think The Irishman and Marriage Story are probably the the big ones. There's a few others kicking around. I mean, you've got um, the two Popes is another Netflix one which is kicking around and will be around. So they've really upped their spending. I mean, you think the last time we spoke about this on the show what we were really focusing on was Roma, uh, which, you know, this time last year was the thing that was getting a lot of the buzz and causing all the Netflix controversy. But I think it's probably only going to be more so this year because I think The Irishman The Irishman will factor into it in a big way. And I think certainly for the, the acting, if not more, Marriage Story, which I also saw at the Cambridge Film Festival, will also feature pretty strongly in that award season chatter, I think.
0: So I think I saw some of your tweets and I definitely saw some early reviews about The Irishman um, and comments from people, and it is sounding like it's a pretty amazing film. So, uh, you know, judging from the Martin Scorsese films I feel like I've seen over the last decade, you know, um, tell me what why there's so much great buzz around this.
1: Well, to me, and we might review it on the next show, so I'll be interested to see what other other folk think of it, but for me, it's... It's a wonderful blend of what is capable of in terms of tone. If you look at something like... You know, I mean, his last film before this was Silence, right? And it feels like it's blending a lot more to do with the quite deep themes of that sort of film that you can make. You know, so Silence is the most recent one. You can also start talking about things like The Last Temptation of Christ. It feels like a wonderful blend of that with what Scorsese is te- stereotypically known for, you know, the the sort of, like, the hijinks of uh, criminal... The criminal hijinks of Goodfellas, of Casino. It seems like, to me, it's the perfect blend of the two of them because there is a lot of humour in this film. There are bits where I laughed. There are bits where, you know, I was very moved by it. I think it's got the best acting by some of its leads than they've done in a long, long time. I mean, this is the best that Robert De Niro has been probably in at least a couple of decades to yeah. be perfectly honest. Um it's the best I've seen Al Pacino in decades. Mm. And you know it's it's had a lot of chat around it because of the the de-aging technology.
0: Yeah, yeah. And did
1: that work? By and large, yeah. I mean, like to me this is a fantastic film. I think my only my only real criticism of it is when you're looking at their faces, I think the de- this de aging tech works quite well. I mean, it's not it's not perfect, just as you wouldn't expect anything to be like. There's a little, particularly when they make them much younger than they are. It doesn't it doesn't quite quite work, but by and large, it's very good. The only real genuine criticism I have of it is, even if you make Robert De Niro look like he's in his late forties. He still moves like a man in his late 70s. Yeah. Um, so they're still carrying themselves with the physicality of much older men. So it doesn't quite work that way. But with the way the story is structured, for, for me, it gets away with it. And the rest of it is, I really clicked with it. The rest of it is so wonderful that, you know, that I'm I'm willing to forgive.
0: Well, um, I think we're all looking forward to it. So perhaps we'll we'll reconvene next month when we've all had a chance to see it. And the more bodies in the room. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and it, and and quite frankly, I'll say it right now. If anybody dislikes it, we're going to have words. Okay. We're going to have words. The only thing I would say is, like, the other thing it's made headlines for is its length. It's three and a half hours long, um,
0: which is a classic, like, contemporary Martin Scorsese film, if you will.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, well, yeah, I mean, Silence is just three said, hours long. Please.
0: <laughs> Learn how to edit, like in the. Uh, but he doesn't. He I doesn't think, seem you know, to.
1: We see that's the intro, that interesting. Like, because I'm, I'm not want to give away all, all my paint before we do it. But that that's a, an interesting thing. Because I I think this film. Yes, I mean it is long, and I I don't I don't think I really felt the length in the sense that I think it works for the story. But a lot is being said about you know how well Martin Scorsese's done the, done with this. Thelma Schoonmaker has done brilliantly with it. This film, to me, is paced to perfection, and a lot of it is down to her editing. Mm. Um, I think if he, you know, and it seems a bit ridiculous to say if Scorsese didn't have Thelma Schoonmaker, because they've worked together for so long, right? But if it didn't have an editor of her caliber working on it, I think it could be more difficult, but her work on this is absolutely fantastic.
0: Great, well, go watch The Irishman, let us know what you think, and we'll let you know what we think when we see it as well. So the first film that we're going to review together is Manos by Alejandro Landis. Uh, Jim and I both saw that together at the Cameo, but it's going—it's out now. Um, at the—is it at the Cameo? It's, uh, it's all over the UK then.
1: Yeah, it might still be at the Cameo, but certainly it's uh, as we broadcast. It should be in the middle of a short run at the Filmhouse as well. All
0: oh, right. Okay. Um, so tell us a little bit about what, what Monos is about, because it took me a little bit of time in the film to figure out what was going on.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, basically, so the film's done very well. I think it won Best Film at the London Film Festival. And, oh, really? Yeah, and basically the film opens on a group of teenagers who are obviously engaged in some sort of... Uh, guerrilla warfare type operation. Um, so it's a, a group of teenagers, uh, boys and girls, and they've kind of got these nicknames which I, I think are maybe ostensibly meant to evoke part of their personality but the you know they're, like, they're Bigfoot and Rambo, Wolf, Lady, I think Boom Boom is another one of them. Um, so they've got these, and it opens on a fairly surreal image, uh, which is them playing football blindfolded. And they're, they, you know, they're kind of staggering around and you only know a goal has been scored when a bell rings. And then they start interacting with the, the a guy that they only refer to as the messenger. And basically what it turns out is that the messenger is part of this wider organisation, which is obviously fighting some sort of battle in this uh, mountainous South American landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, so Alejandro Landes, I think, is... Colombian Ecuadorian certainly has got that sort of look about it you know like high high altitude South American uh nation so the the messengers part of this larger organization and the group of children that we've been introduced to are the monos um that's kind of where the the title of the film comes from and they're clearly They're clearly teenagers, and they get up to this random teenage stuff almost. You know, like, they're asking for permission to become partners and enter into relationships. There's hijinks, there's weird kind of, like, ritualistic dancing around campfires in the evening. They are also, and this is kind of maybe one of the the main drivers of what plot there is, right, because we'll get to that in a minute. They have this... uh, i think she's american but basically they mm-hmm. have a hostage uh who they only refer to as doctora and basically th- she is in their care and it's up to them to keep her in you know good condition and right at the start of the film basically what kind of incites the events of it is they've been given a cow by somebody <laughs> who is sympathetic to their cause and the messenger gives it to them and says, look you've been given this, you can use it for milk and all the rest of it, but you have to return the cow at the end, right? Nothing, no harm can befall this cow. Um, there's not much of a spoiler to say that obviously harm befalls the cow, right? Yeah. And then there's various things that then spin off off the back of that. But it's a, it's a very... It's quite a surrealist film. There's not a lot of context given as a crutch, I would say. Uh, you, know, you know, you don't actually know what country and in. You don't actually know what it is they're fighting for. You don't really know even what time and place it's it's taking place in or certain exactly, hints yeah. here and there, right? You can kind of contextualise that it's not, you know, it's not in the distant past or anything and it's not even maybe even that long ago. That is very devoid of context, just in the way that the characters are, actually.
0: Yeah, and um, I think we both kind of walked down in the same thing. Well, I was watching it. I was watching it and thinking... Oh, here's a Lord of the Flies story, you know, and then it just kind of turned into Heart of Darkness Apocalypse Now, and we both exclaimed that, and now if you read something like Peter Bradshaw's Mm -hmm. five-star review of it, he says the same thing. So there's so much about this that kind of is, well, you said it has no context, has context of stories and films and whatnot that we've seen in the past, but in a new sort of landscape, a bit, you know, because yeah, it's, it's South a, America.
1: Yeah, it's a slightly di- yeah, it's a slightly different setting and tone. I would I would say because it, it, I mean, yeah, I mean, you and I both said as we came out, it's very it, it it's very Lord of the Flies meets Apocalypse Now, really. I mean, that's that's what people will come out of it as kind of the cultural touchstones you'll recognise from it. Where it differs, I suppose, is. Again, that lack of context, and also I think the the musical approach as well.
0: Yeah, it was quite. Um, um, who, who's the composer again? Michael Levy. Yeah, yeah.
1: Who is the the woman who did? Um, well, what I know of from, from is the score that she did for Under the Skin. Yeah, great film. Uh, she also did it for Jackie, which I've not seen. Um, oh,
0: I don't like that film. <laughs> but Natalie Portman. So. But,
1: but but certainly, like the 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 music that goes with this, it did very much remind me of Under the Skin, which of course is another film which is kind of like you know unsettling, a bit surreal, Absolutely. devoid of context, yeah. and her score does a lot to uh, a lot to sell that sort of. Tone it's going for. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you had a slightly more conventional score, it wouldn't add quite as much to it. Um, it's a very stunning-looking film, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. But for me, the main takeaways are the acting. I thought all the I thought all the teenagers playing those roles were very good. Uh, but the the musical approach, I think, is really what makes it stick in your head a little bit.
0: Yeah, the soundscape. It's quite visual. It's beautiful. Um... I maybe like I don't I don't not need context but it did take me a while to get engaged in the film and you know it was a journey across you know some amazonian somewhat landscape and after a while it was it, it it didn't grab me, and I don't think it, the. It, it, I mean, I, I was I was very sad about the cow, and I thought that was a really s- sad moment. Until we'll talk about the other films later. You've you've qu- picked quite a a bunch of <laughs> depressing films, Jim. Um, so that <laughs> that was only the beginning of what what was to come for me and my film experience this month. Um, but but yeah, no, it just it can it did pick up and get more intense and sort of like i think maybe as you learned the characters kind of own free will and you know the decision of being part of a pack or being you know making personal decisions and you know and betrayal and all those lord of the flies kind of things you would expect
1: yeah i think it, it, it it's definitely i would say it, it did grab me from the start but i it, if i'm nitpicking i wouldn't say it necessarily kept that hold um, particularly well in the star. I mean, as I say, so like the sound design is is superb. It looks very good. The acting's great, but it did need that. So about I think it's maybe about halfway through the film. There is a there is a change in locale and basically the the way these characters are interacting. There's a bit of a step change and there's a change in pace as well. I think the film definitely needed that. If it settled into a slightly more contemplative mood for the whole thing I don't think it would have brought it home quite as well, it needed that acceleration and this kind of like the creeping kind of like heart of darkness madness type thing and the chaos parts of Lord of the Flies to really bring it on a bit I think Um, so it's extremely well done I I don't think I'm quite as for fear of being contrary, I don't think I'm quite as blown away by it as I've seen a lot of people be but it's definitely a very accomplished film.
0: Yeah, I mean I also definitely didn't always understand the motivations of every character but then again maybe it's younger people not knowing what to do or you know what decision to make or whatnot because i mean i obviously understood doctora's motivation to get the heck out (laughs) (laughs) which i would most of that film sometimes i was like i want to get out of here too
1: i think that i think that's the part where the 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 no context kind of worked for me though because it's more you know it's made very clear i think that these these are quite young characters and it's more you, know, you, get, you can't really figure out what's driving them because i'm not sure they necessarily know right. and it's certainly like you see allegiances within that group kind of like turn on a dime and switch up um so i think in that respect that's maybe where that lack of context plays to the film's ideas um, but as I say, it needed, it didn't, it does need that step change that happens uh, about halfway through the film in order to to get those character interactions kicking off. Because otherwise, it, it's it's a little bit, it's interesting and well done, but it's a little bit stayed. It needed that, it needed that introduction of a bit of peril and a change of pace to get those character interactions sparking off the way that I think the latter half of the film does very well, and it needed.
0: Yeah, I think. All told, though, it is a film you know that we're both saying go see. You know, make make the decision for yourself. It's 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 quite it's it's beautiful. It's uh, the soundscape is stunning, and um, you know it, it gives you something new.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's a very accomplished film. It worked for me. I'm not going to sit here and say it will work for everyone. You know, for the for the reasons that we've outlined. But it sounds great. It looks great. It's a very good film. Uh, I'm not surprised it's done well on the festival circuit, and I think it's it's well worth seeing.
0: Great. So the next film that um, we watched was Meeting Gorbachev, a documentary about uh, Mikhail Gorbachev himself, um, co-directed by the famous infamous Werner Herzog and um, his co-director André Singer. I actually saw André Singer at the International Documentary Festival Amsterdam uh, show a few clips and, and do like a master class on this so I'd seen a couple clips of this film about a year ago um, the filmmakers meet with um, Gorbachev I think you know obviously in the later part of his life and um think they do three interviews or so there's a, you know and and it really is a dialogue between Herzog and Gorbachev and then goes back through you know uh, Gorbachev's life his decisions and you know at the end of his life as it sort of suggested because Gorbachev does mention he you know, thinks he has maybe a couple years or he wants a couple years um you know where he sees the decisions that he made is what he's what he's proud of and what he's not I personally um, was, I just, I loved the film. And I like, I really got to know a person that, you know, you like when you grow up in the 80s and 90s, you know of this, this character, you know, some but of a hero, sometimes not. And I think that it really was a very touching film and like but it also wasn't it wasn't you know like herzog asked those tough questions as well so it you know it was interrogating and also touching and quite moving at the end as well so i think we a couple of us had tears in our eyes
1: yeah i i I must admit i wasn't i wasn't really going into this film necessarily expecting to be to be moved to be honest and You know, Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, he's a figure I'm aware of, but I'm of the sort of age where I was alive when all this stuff was happening with, like, you you know, him uh, coming to power in the Soviet Union and Perestroika and Glasnost and all this stuff and, you know, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, but I'm too young to really remember any of it. So I've kind of got vague context, but, you know, I've never really engaged with Gorbachev as a figure beyond what you kind of see pop up in, you know, retrospective news articles and things like that. So, on the face of it, you know, Werner Herzog sitting down to talk to an 88-year-old Russian that you don't really know a lot about, on the face of it, it it, it could be quite a hard sell, to be honest. But it's an extremely well-done documentary, and the reason for that, I think, is because of the approach that... um, Herzog and presumably his his co-director Andre Singer as well who remains behind the camera and Herzog is in front doing the the Interviewing is the approach they take to their questioning. It's not. It's not really about dryly what happened Mm -hmm. It's more rooted in what did Gorbachev Feel about it. What is he proud of? What does he feel his legacy is? What does he think is missing? from his legacy and i think it it presents a very rounded picture of uh wh- who is a very interesting character right because obviously that that period in european world history is kind of is kind of fascinating and he's a figure at the center of it but i think the decision to focus the questioning on what his internal thoughts were about it really makes a huge difference and that's not to say that there isn't factual you know like more I don't want to say bland, that's the wrong word, but more kind of like straight, factual information around it It gives context, but where the heart of the film is is in those conversations that Herzog has with Gorbachev.
0: Yeah, and it it obviously reminded me in the same vein of films that Aaron Morris has done, specifically The Fog of War, Um, but, and, and there was kind of a, I mean, unlike in The Fog of War, which I think there's a bit of a, like, uncertainty at the end of, inconsistency and you know in the in the interview, um, there wasn't necessarily inconsistency, but the, Gorbachev does kind of reveal things that you might not have thought he would have felt you know um, like just delusion of the Soviet Union was was a mistake, you know is, is ultimately what I think comes down to say.
1: Yeah, well that's that's what's quite it. by by trying to dig into like what his feelings are on different things, you get this like reasonably complex picture. Like obviously he he was very on board with the idea of needing to reform communism as it was put and you know, make life better for people who were in so the Soviet Union at the time, but that doesn't mean that he believes the Soviet Union was necessarily the wrong way to to do that and I think he you get hints of how critical he is of Russian politicians that have followed him. Absolutely, uh, yeah, and and like the pair, you know, and they're, they're being a little bit clever about it with the the filmmaking as well, because there's 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 not a lot of mention of uh, Putin, yeah. right? Like in terms of. People talking about him—he's conspicuous by his absence. The person who kind of gets most of the the ire from Gorbachev is Boris Yeltsin, right? Mm-hmm. Who's a very outspoken critic of anyway. But there is this interesting little shot where you know it covers the the whole range of uh, Gorbachev's life and career. And there's a segment where you know his wife has sadly passed away, and the segment, the, yeah, the segment that they show of that is vladimir putin paying his respects you know so it even if it's not engaging with certain things directly it's very aware of them but i think it's trying to get to a greater a greater truth about the man right it's led it's nodding to the kind of the contemporary politics and what's happening now but it is more wanting to look at how it's got to that point through the eyes of Mikhail Gorbachev.
0: Yeah, and I also, I think the masterclass that I had gone to was a lot about the archive that they had access to because some of the archival footage is really incredible wherever it comes from. And there's one particular scene that really struck me when he was signing the, the his resignation from the USSR and... The main camera, they were pushing him to to make a you know to to make it a, a very public thing, and he wouldn't. But then the fact that in this film you have that side camera, you have that mm. other view that that was there, but you know it is quite quite great for a documentary filmmaker. It's a it's a lovely moment.
1: Yeah, I think the the key thing is it blends them very well, you know, because you've got the the conversations, but also the the use of archive footage. I find is is really. Is really informative it's interesting and it's been edited superbly i think because one of the traps that i think you can probably fall into and certainly i've seen in you know documentaries that have engaged me less is kind of archive footage's window dressing right mm-hmm. it's, it's just there for for context but it's not particularly meaningful context that's something that can happen that's very much not the case here and in particular there's a clip from another film uh, which was focusing on Gorbachev, where he's just kind of, he's wandering around his house and basically just kind of like bumbling around the yeah. garden, really. But the context in which it's used, it's in the segment where he's talking about losing his wife. Right. And it turns it from just like this, this old guy in a suit bumbling around the garden to like really mean quite moving and heartbreaking. Yeah, and it's the like...
0: family, coming back to see the family and everything, I was just, yeah, that was really, really touching. Um, it, it, it isn't the most innovative like film, but sometimes I think we're always searching for so much innovation and in some formats and stuff, you know. Um, and and that doesn't make that I to me that doesn't make it less of a, a powerful piece because I think it does everything it needs to do to tell this particular story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, you. You've hit the nail on the head there. I think it's not you know it's not doing anything particularly new. I don't think, but there's a lot to be said for doing it well and it absolutely does that
0: great so we highly recommend you see it if you're interested in soviet history 80s history uh you know and or a good film So the final film we're going to um, review is coming out later in the month, around the 29th in the UK. Um, I think it's I'm Australian, uh, um, Australian-British co-production, The Nightingale, uh, directed by Jennifer Kent. It does take place in Australia. Jim, tell me a little bit about the film.
1: So it takes place in Australia in the 19th century. So I think it's about the mid-1800s. The mid um, and it basically follows a, a young Irish woman who is there as part of a penal colony she's a convict and she's under the, the care of kind of you know uh british military forces and she has been married and she's due a letter to allow her to to leave effectively and go into you know the care of her husband basically uh this has been denied her the head of the the of the unit has kind of procrastinated on this and hasn't done it um, so basically, without wanting to get too, into too many details, basically what happens is her reaction to not getting this letter is seen as an act of insub- insubordination. And there's a, a fight, and the basically this woman is wronged, really, on, on v- various different levels, and we'll get into that in a moment. And what then happens is she sets out after uh these military personnel who have now left uh, on a revenge quest effectively right
0: um jim you know i don't know if you knew much about the film <laughs> before you picked it but you could not have picked a more painful film to watch from the sev- like i think it's like 7 minutes in and you're involved in the first rape scene i don't yeah. there's like three or four in the film um there's I mean, nobody nobody in this world is is like is having a good time. You know? No. It's no. It's um, just it's so devastating.
1: Yeah, it is you know, and it just giving the number of rape scenes in this film doesn't actually really do justice to quite how difficult it actually is to yeah. watch. Um you know, so this this film I think it's um it's been on the festival circuit, and I first kind of heard about it when it came to the, the London version of Sundance. And it, I think it premiered at Melbourne uh, in Australia, and there was a lot of talk about people walking out of the film. And I, 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 I can see why, to be honest. It is an extremely difficult film to watch. I What I would say is it's quite a smart film. I, I don't think it's... It, it's not it has avoided this trope of kind of like rape as an empowerment thing. I, I, I do think it avoids that and the central performance as Claire uh, by Ashling Franchosi, uh, who's an I- Irish-Italian actress, she's superb. Um, and I think Jennifer Kent's direction is very good. So, Jennifer Kent is probably best known for The Babadook, which I've not seen, unfortunately, but certainly, you know, it, it, it seems to be very well regarded. And the way that she shot the film, I think, is very interesting. There are quite a lot of um, horror elements to this in terms of the framing and, you know, the blocking of how characters move through frames and scenes. So, it's a very accomplished film. I think it's very well done. I, I think it's a legitimate question to ask as to the ideas that she's trying to get across and the, the arc that her characters are going on. There's a question whether it's been maybe pushed just that little bit far. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's that, that a legitimate concern to bring up. Because um, really, if you watch this film, basically I would imagine what you're going to come out of this thinking is that's a really well-made film uh, but Dear God is it hard to get through.
0: Yeah, I mean there's there's a film that comes to mind which is way worse than this um that I saw one time in a theater and and it, it was called 29 Palms and I when I walked out of that I was like I want those 2 hours of my life back because it put me in a very very bad mood. And whether or not it's, whether or not they just saw like a headline of, you know, a review which says necessarily brutal, does this film need to be this brutal to tell a story about a penal colony and, you know, and rape and, you know, what the British soldiers would have done and what, um, you know, the, the the way that people were were treated, maybe, but. It was. It, it's such a hard subject matter, of in a part of history that is, you know, is, is is and it's very hard to take, you know, during a narrative story.
1: Yeah, and and the the other thing is, it's you've touched upon it there. the The, the brutality and the difficulty in this film it goes beyond the the rate, as difficult as they are. It goes beyond. The rape scenes, because there's a lot of mistreatment of the native people of Australia in this, uh, which, again, I mean, that had, you know, given the time in the setting that that is what happened. And I believe that there are, um, you know, organizations and groups in Australia who testified to the fact that in that respect, the film is is accurate. Um, accuracy notwithstanding. I don't know how well that works on film. And I, I've always been a bit wary of the term necessarily brutal, mm. um, you know, because if you're telling a story, you need people to engage with it uh, in order to get across the... Because the, the, basically the journey, the main kind of emotional journey of the film is Claire um, basically becomes attached to uh, an indigenous man called Billy... Mm-hmm. Now, who basically, at the start of it she bas- she basically employs him really um to accompany her on this journey through the uh, kind of like forested wilderness effectively in pursuit of these men who have wronged her and it starts off as you know quite an anti- antagonistic relationship like you know she's a little bit racist he 's a little bit racist in response, and they slowly start to kind of like break those barriers down and you know, I'm, I'm making it sound more clichéd than I think it comes across, but, you know, realise they have more in common than they think. Like, there's a one, there was one part that kind of, like, raised a smile to my mind when he's kind of getting on his high horse about how dreadful the English are and having a go at her. And she points out she's Irish, she hates <laughs> the English just as much as he does. And, like, you know, so that's kind of the main emotional arc. And basically, it's it seems to be about finding kind of, like, common humanity in, in the face of, like, what is, like, pretty brutal behaviour of other human beings the, there is a question about whether that just it does drown it out really like some of the, you br- mean the, the relationship the as in the brutality i think oh, maybe right. drowns out the that central relationship a yeah, little I bit i think
0: the relationship was the part that just kept me going in this film the only thing that i could like grasp onto that like wasn't wanting me to walk out <laughs> you know and um, you know what was was that kind of like survival Coming together and working together to help each other, and the other people which you would they would follow find along the way that were somewhat helpful, or you know, or it, you know, like you said, the genuine humanity of some people in the face of a really terrible history and a you know terrible sense of racism and obviously other activities that were happening. You know, to to convicts and women.
1: Yeah, because there's a certain I amount mean, because because obviously the the big kind of the elephant in the room with this film is also kind of colonialism, really. Right. You know, I mean, this is all driven from you know the British in Australia and you know everything that that entails about like how they operated in that country. So you've kind of got the microcosm of their relationship and what that represents, but then the driver for all of it above that is kind of the the brutality which is fostered by colonialism this idea of you know people being superior to uh other you know other races other peoples and and that sort of thing i i I just keep coming back to i'm very impressed by the film but i did find it very difficult and i i'm not criticizing it from a You know, it's unnecessarily difficult. I'm not criticising it from a... It's unrealistically difficult. Because I think everything it shows, based on what I've seen... I mean, it is accurate. This this stuff did happen. It was horrible and it was brutal. There is an element of, if you're trying to tell a story, whether you kind of you know drag people out of that story by it being so brutal I mean there, there are a couple of scenes where I did find it difficult to make through it like uh, I I did kind of breathe a sigh of relief when certain scenes finished and I feel like maybe i have not engaged with those scenes quite as much as maybe Jennifer Kent intended me to as a result now maybe that's my own problem but i i don't think based on what i've seen i'll be the only person who has that reaction to some of those scenes
0: yeah i mean i'm the same way i like i you know my gut reaction to well like you said very well shot you know very well told story was there there's no real complaints on Mm -hmm. the filmmaking capabilities of this film um what you know, I, I'm also not I, I also very am like very sensitive to rape scenes, so that's gonna be an immediate thing that I won't usually watch films with that. But you know, my gut response to a film has to has means I need something there that like brings me in, draws me to it and makes you know, and says, Wow, like that was worth my two and a half hours or, or whatnot <laughs> this one just was painful
1: yeah yeah it's it, it's a very well-made film but you know i think it's a classic buyer beware situation to be honest
0: so trigger alert i guess
1: oh yeah no i mean for certain for certain like i i i would be surprised if this film doesn't come with you know warnings on it and, 18 yeah. and all the rest of it It's. Uh, so, fortunately, I had the, the pleasure of talking to Paul Laverty, who's the screenwriter of Sorry We Missed You, which is Ken Loach's uh, most recent film. So that came out on release at the start of the month. Uh, I don't know if it's playing at this precise moment. It may well have got left cinemas, but it is getting a short run at the film house from the 22nd until the 28th of November. So you will have a chance to catch it again. It's, it's a really excellent film. Uh, it's basically centred on a man who works in the gig economy, he works as a delivery driver, and it kind of follows the strains that puts on his family life, along with his uh, carer wife, uh, played, uh, I think the character's name is Debbie, who's on a zero-hours contract, so it basically goes into a very well-told story about the strain that puts on their family life, and just being able to to live um so fortunately i got a chance to talk to paul laverty before he did a a q a at the, the cameo earlier this month so we'll go straight into the interview and basically i started off by asking him why they chose to focus on that particular aspect of the gig economy because there's various different ways it could be represented and then we got into what they were trying to achieve with the film the response and how they went about making it there's many aspects of the gig economy you could have focused on because obviously it has so many different facets and so many different ways that people are engaging with it what was it that made you focus upon delivery drivers of the sort of amazon dpd nature in particular was it just the research or was there something about that particular thing that
2: no it's uh, a good question and and, yeah there are there are there are many options but um the drivers and couriers gives us a lot of levels, always like that, you know, first of all, you've got the extreme control with the scanner or the, or the gun that they call it, you know, so it measures everything. Um, and we now see the death of the high street, we see more and more shops going bust, we see city centres dying. There's the whole environmental question as well, is that a good model really for one exploited driver, you know, running around and delivering shoes and socks and curries and vapes and some of the crazy things I heard that were delivered you know, meanwhile the drivers are massively exploited and then there's pollution all over the place. They zigzag out of order because they must meet precisers. It ties in with extreme demand from consumers. And of course it ties in with these great monstrous companies, you know, like Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And so if you do do this, I mean, there's lots of levels to it. And then if you mix that with someone who's a a carer and zero-hour contracts looking after our older people as a demographic um, time bomb, and uh, how are we looking after our old people and uh, and um, so we just thought well let's have a look at precarious work and um, a- and make a very intimate portrait of a family and see how much time these adults actually spend with our children and of course it begs a great big existential question about um how much time do you spend with your children what is the point of work if you can't look after your children properly so there was kind of great richness in it and uh, i suppose that's what attracted us to
1: it so on a similar sort of theme, what so obviously I Daniel Blake dealt with the the welfare state, or at least certainly the way this government has been treating it, their attitude to it and the effect that has on actual people. What made you want to stay in that area? Because obviously this is a this is a different thing, but it is related and obviously the the Abbey character, her arc is Kind of intrinsically linked to cuts and how we deal with kind of looking after society what made you want to remain within that area
2: um yeah i suppose we kind of imagine that the turner family this is you know in the turner family we deal with probably lived you know a few streets down the road from daniel blake so we see it as a companion piece but they're very different worlds daniel blake was about the world of welfare about an older man he was quite isolated in in, in some senses um Yes, we imagine this was a family that, you know, just really lived a couple of doors along the street from Daniel Blake. So it was a companion piece. And um, one is the world of welfare and how strict and vicious that can be. We see people who are in their last months of life are deemed to be fit for work. We came across that barbarity and systematic cruelty by the state. But in a strange way, I think you need a kind of a barbaric system in welfare if you're going to try and keep people in these terrible precarious jobs or pushed to push to the limit so there is a kind of a there is a, a connection between them there is a method in their madness and, um, and we also just wanted to look at uh, a young family the world of work the world of work dictates so much about our lives and the quality of our lives and how much time we spend and and, um, and another thing of course when we actually did the research for daniel blake went to food banks up and down the country and we heard so many stories from people and you look them in the eye and you try to understand the intricacies and the detail of their life and what struck us was there were so many people who were working in precarious work so they had jobs it was the working poor it wasn't just people who were unemployed or couldn't work and um, so that really made us question how is it what's happening to work the precarious nature of it agency work zero hour contracts gig economy there's so many people had to go to a food bank to feed their children i mean that is a real massive seismic shift under the surface. So we really wanted to, to examine all of that.
1: One thing I wanted to ask you about in that respect was also the, the character of Maloney, so the, the, the warehouse boss. Yes. And obviously it would be very easy to fall into uh, something very caricatured there, yes. but I found that that certainly wasn't the case, in particular at that point where he gets the chance to explain his rationale. Yes and it's to my mind flawed rationale but you can at least see it's more the system rewards that
2: yes and uh, i think that's a very good question i'm glad you've raised it because i didn't want to see him to be the central casting bad guy at all in fact i remember when we were speaking to ross we were saying i mean this man is actually you know he feels he has to be cruel to be kind he says he wants to form a protective cover over his depot so that they win the contracts and nearby look after the families the families he's responsible for and um, so he's brutal he calls himself um, well I better not say the words in case it cuts you out from community radio but he, he, he calls himself you know, he has a certain description of himself and he kind of revels in that but I mean it's not him it's the bad guy it's the system he is in that position because he fulfills a role and he has just been carrying out the logic of that role they must keep the scanner happy, because the scanner must be satisfied, and if that hits its targets, they win more contracts from Zara and John Lewis and Amazon and 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 wherever. So for him, it's it's actually in the logic of capital that he must do that. So he's not the best guy. He's he's just the he's just. The, but yeah, you, ha- you need characters like that to to carry it out.
1: You know. On that note, in terms of. Because i say, it, it would have been easy to make him a caricature, but he's not. Mm. I know from your previous statements on this, you, you do a lot <laughs> of research into understanding the characters and kind of the stories that need to be told here. What is it you hope the reaction is? Because obviously there's a certain level of predictable reaction from people who are predisposed otherwise, shall we say. Mm. But from a... From a social perspective, what is it you hope the response is?
2: Um, well, we had the usual aesthetical reaction from, uh, you know, Conservatives and Conservative supporters. And, and uh, as we did with I, Daniel Blake, you know, they said it was exaggerated. But then they were hit with tons of tweets and information that overwhelmed them. And they realised that we'd only um, scratched the surface. And um, some of them have started on the same thing now with the couriers. You know, and for those people who accuse of exaggerating, I like to tell people the story of Don Lane, you know, who was a driver of DPD, um, who was a man who had diabetes, he was 52 years of age. I met his wife after the, after the screening actually, I didn't meet her until after the film was made. Uh, but Don, um, he got fined £150 per day when he had to, he couldn't find a replacement driver when he had important doc, um, um, specialist appointments. And then, anyway, so he missed a few of those, and then he had more specialist appointments. And But he couldn't afford to get the fines, he was scared to get into debt, he was under great stress, couldn't find um, replacement drivers, which sounds easy. Uh, but because they're now deemed to be self employed, they carry the responsibility of that. If you were ill before, you would just get sick pay. Um, anyway, to cut a very long story short, he became more and more ill. One of his fellow workers said, Don, you're breaking up, you know, you're, being, you know you're, you're, you're falling apart. His wife was very worried about him. Then it was over a very Christmas Christmas period, Um, they had lots of deliveries to do in the 4th of January, I think it was 2018, I think that was the year he died, 2018, he died of complications. This is a 52 year old man who should still be with us today, should still be with his lovely wife Ruth, and he was trapped inside a logic like that, DPD um, have since banned that £150 fine. You know, but a lot of these companies now—they just change the language. They say three strikes and they're out, and they find a different way to do it. But the point is, all risk with these self-employed contracts—they're bogus self-employed contracts. They don't call them workers; they call them owner-driver franchisees. They don't get hired; they become on board. You don't get paid a salary; you're paid a fee. So they've got all this language, and they create these language—they li- create this language so that you, the driver, which every single moment of your life is controlled by this scanner because it knows where you are what position you're in, you know where you put the parcels, the moment you clock on to the moment you clock off, you're deemed to be a free entrepreneur who decides his own fate. it's absolute bollocks. So I think what you see now is how technology is used not to liberate, but to enslave people. And then you see Abby on the other side with her zero contracts. Her working day is spread out from first thing in the morning to late at night. She has gets people up in the morning, gives them breakfast, there's the meds at lunchtime and meals and the nighttime, the tuck And then there's all these spaces during the day where she doesn't get paid. She has to pay her own traveling expenses. Oftentimes when you measure all that out, it's less than the minimum wage. So again, it suits the employer because they don't pay them when it doesn't when, when it doesn't suit them to work. But once again, you see families, family life, the rhythm of family work totally destroyed. So when I hope people see this, they'll say, well, it suits the market. It suits the shareholders. It suits the big giant corporations, but it doesn't suit us. It doesn't suit the community. It doesn't suit children. It doesn't suit the schools. And the children are tired, and they don't have the supervision of their parents. They're not having their homework. There's no family cohesion. There's a kind of a madness in it. So I hope people get really, really mad and say, "Well, this is why Jeff Bezos has got 150 billion. You know, why all these tech companies, you know, tell us there's no alternative. And what they do is they squeeze more and more profit." and crush people that's what they're doing they're crushing people and they're using technology to do it those people are manacled to these just as just as surely as a slave was to the irons away way way back Um, and the the wonderful English poet from 200 years ago William Blake talked about mind forged manacles in other words how we enslave our own brains and then and I think that's what's happened with these self-bogus self-employed contracts. You're an entrepreneur. It's your business. So if you're not a millionaire and have your own franchisee in five years, you're a failure. You're, you're, you're morally weak. You haven't got enough intelligence. You're not creative enough. You're not working hard enough. So once again, the blame falls on the person. So it suits the market, but it doesn't suit us. We're not just consumers. You know, we're workers. We're neighbours. We're community members. We're, we're part. We're part of something. And what we're doing is we're destroying the fabric of the most intimate space that we have, which is our lives. All that new language. And of course, they've got teams of psychologists and lawyers and PR. I mean, the people who design these onboarding, all this language, you know, and it's absolute, you know, it's, let's call it for what it is, it's absolute, total bullshit. And the people who live through it, you know, you know, um, they know it's, they know they're trapped in it when, they, when, when they're in it. Now, what they'll do is they'll present You know, workers who get a few hours work, you know, retired people who do a couple of hours here and there when it suits them. You know, and um, that's okay. But for people who have got families or people who have got to earn their monthly income, all power is with the corporation. Zero-hour contract. You're hired when the corporation wants you. You can't say, no, I'm not working today. You're at their beck and call. Oftentimes you can't work for other people. So all the power is with the corporation, but they use the language of freedom and choice which is an
1: absolute farce. One thing I wanted to ask you about was, obviously, in your case, you've done quite a lot of work on social causes from a more direct involvement. Obviously, in terms of you've done, you've done humanitarian work, you used to work as a human rights lawyer. What is it about the creative process, in screenwriting in particular, What is the power there that you think you find? Because clearly there's something there that speaks to your ideas about being able to instigate something or communicate something. What is it that you find is different compared to the way you've engaged with these issues in your earlier life?
2: Well, I mean, I suppose uh, Ken and myself, we've worked together now for over 25 years. We've done a whole number of films together. I can't remember now, is it? 14 features and several shorts. And I suppose um, you're motivated by what's going on around you, trying to understand the world, trying to how, figure out how power works in our lives. But what we want to do is tell great stories. You know, we don't want to have... It's not, they're not manifestos. You know, they're not kind of two-dimensional pamphlets, I hope. I mean, you have to just find rich stories. So when people see, sorry I miss you, I hope they'll see an intimate of a modern family, all the intricacies and subtleties and the nuances of different relationships you know daughter to father you know partners between them sibling relationships you know and 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 mother to son and it's endlessly complex and fascinating and i hope people will recognize you know some of their friends or neighbors or some of themselves in it so i suppose we try to tell stories so that will resonate and and uh, hopefully people will come up with a few questions you know but films themselves don't change anything but they can add to the conversation. You know, with Daniel Blake, I think it helped um, undermine the stereotype of people in welfare and the grand lies propagated by the state. And I hope, you know, we'll do the same thing here, but, but what I think, well, to change anything, is going to take radical political action. And I noticed there. I'm not a member of the Labour Party, but I did notice that John MacDonald in his last party conference speech down in Brighton, just a couple of weeks ago, he said the first thing they would do is they would get rid of zero contracts. Every worker would have trade union rights from the first day they started. Everybody will get the living wage and they will um, outlaw subcontracting for carers. Now, if they did that, it's not a revolution, Jim, but what it would be, would be a, a remarkable turnabout in the lives of millions of workers. And what we've noticed too is that um, this isn't just about the UK. We've just come back from you know, Ireland and Italy and France where we showed the film to 1,100 workers the same story there, precarious work, chambermaids, cleaners, courier drivers. I just got a letter today from someone in Brazil. I got another letter today from our Japanese distributor to see how it's resonating there. So all this use of technology, precarious work, you know, and people not getting to the end of the month, is now becoming absolutely universal with the system. So I think it begs the big, big question, how we begin to recognise that the market, the so-called free market, is a nonsense. And we have to plan work and plan our lives, and I'm aware that it's more sustainable and more humane.
1: So, one other thing I want to ask you about was the the setting of Newcastle, because obviously you, that's been maintained between I, Daniel Blake, and <laughs> what, what is it? I've heard both you. And Ken Loach speak very favourably about the likes of Glasgow, Liverpool and other cities in the UK. What what is it about Newcastle that made you want to keep the setting for the story there?
2: Um well there are there are artistic reasons and there's practical reasons. Um because everybody in Daniel Blake, you know, all the, the, the small parts, that that, that that turns into the whole. And uh, the city gave us great life, there's great personalities there, the accent is vital. The people are fun there's a bounce to them and uh, some cities just have a spark about them i think glasgow has it i think liverpool has it and uh, newcastle definitely has it maybe it's something to do with its working class history or not but there's a there's a mix there and there's also great variety i mean you know the victorian city center is absolutely stunning in newcastle and then it's got all sorts of varieties and there's a so there's and and the great thing about it is you can get around it quickly as well you're not stuck you know, stuck in traffic for two hours, trying to get to a location. Um, but then, and also there was great support from from the city. You really felt there was a buoyancy there and well received, people made it easy for us. And there was a kind of a generosity of spirit. Um, so we just thought, you know, this is a companion piece to Daniel Blake and it'll work very well here.
1: With that in mind, in your script when you conceived the characters, was, was Ricky always going to be Mancunian or is that something that came from the casting of Chris? Well,
2: I mean, what we do, the casting is a long, long process and we've got a brilliant casting director called Calling Crawford who's worked with us for a long time. And what Ken always says is, well, we try to find the best person who gives flesh and blood to the character as imagined mm-hmm. in the script. You know, so we, we, saw some, we, saw, we saw people all over. We saw a brilliant Glaswegian who, who was terrific um and we saw we saw lots of good people and um, but we didn't want it just to be based in, in newcastle um and chris we just felt was you know very close to the character as we imagined i mean he'd done some acting beforehand but he'd run his own business he was a plumber he had his own van he knew that world i think he just believed him as a as a courier driver um debbie who was absolutely quite brilliant she'd done a few um scenes as extras but she was a a teaching assistant and um, and she just had a quality about her that we just imagined that was very very close to abby in the film and then the two kids were local kids who were just terrific so we just tried to create a believable family but i think um, ken always makes brave choices you know we sit down and we do it together with rebecca mm-hmm. and we try and just decide who fits best but he always makes brave choices and um, and i think they did a really original job in this because i think you actually really do do believe it's a family
1: on a kind of a, a similar note with all that so I, I i spoke i i was fortunate enough to speak to ken several years ago just after the angel share came out uh-huh. and he spoke about the the perception of your films so your collaborations with him as being mm-hmm. political or from his view not being political is that something you share in the sense that you, you don't conceive them as stories that are meant to make a political point but it's more in telling the stories of actual people it comes to to make a point that you feel is valuable
2: well making a point makes it sound like a manifesto and um we try and avoid that what we want to do is have rounded characters and and a rich a rich a rich story acts in many different levels and um and and if you do that well, you know, um, I think the politics flows from it naturally, but it's not forced out of it. You know, when you watch The Bicycle Thieves, you know, that beautiful neorealist film from Rome after the war, you know, it's a simple story about a man trying to get a bike. But what you do is you just see the devastation and the unemployment and the hunger and the precariousness of their whole lives just through a, a simple tale. Um, now, that's massively political. And then, of course, there are other films that are massively political, especially the big, huge American budgets, which are often very, very right-wing. Massively political, in my opinion, but they're deemed to be entertainment. So how a film is called political or non-political, or called, you know, kitchen sink drama, or, you know, gritty socialist realism, I mean, I don't really go for any of these great. I think it just distracts from what's in front of your eye. I just think people should try and um, just see... Just try and engage with the story and have an open mind about it. I think that's that's what we, I think that's what we try and achieve.
1: In that mind, some of the, some of the slightly more hysterical reactions to, in particular, I Daniel Blake, but I'm I, I'm sure this one's going to get it get them <laughs> as well. Unfortunately, yeah,
2: we'll no, that doesn't bother us. Is
1: there, is there something about the the fact that you're, is there something about the fact that you're telling a fictional story, that you've come up with now albeit it's based in research and it's based in real people which makes it indisputable in the sense that because of this kind of like post-truth era we seem to be living in people will question anything but because you have ownership of this story and it's conveying I, i like to think a greater truth beyond the specifics of a specific situation is there something about that that can't be refuted, whereas something in a in a documentary or mm-hmm. some sort of statistic that's been interpreted a certain way could be now?
2: Um, well, it's um, what we try and do. I mean, this is a totally fictional story, but it's after you know Ken and myself um, and I've um, absorbed and done a lot of really digging. Especially, I mean, that's my, my job to do that digging, really, and then share it with Ken. And that's very, very important for us. Now, for Daniel Blake, it's really hard to get your head around the welfare legislation. And, and once you even get your head around the law, then you have to get round, get your head round how it's lived in practice, the lived experience of it. And you can only do that by spending time with people and really being rigorous. And um, so after doing all that, Anybody you do is try and forget it because there's so many hundreds of options. You can't copy a screenplay from the street. You can't copy a screenplay from the research. But you have to forget it and then it's the imaginative leap to invent the characters and pick the premise and try and choose the right people and then sort out the narrative. And that's the really complicated, difficult bit. Um, now, it's fictional, but... If we hadn't done that well, and if if we had lied about what those characters did in I, Daniel Blake, it would have undermined the whole project and the Tories would have screwed us. Mm. But they couldn't do that. They never found that gap. They tried to say we were exaggerating and every time they did, people came back and, you know, said, well, that's nonsense and here's the A, B, C and D of it. So eventually, I think it was mentioned about eight times in Parliament, I think they started trying to ignore it. Um, But that was very important that it was resilient. And really, really important for, for me and Ken that it stands up. Otherwise, they'll, they'll use any little mistake that we might have made to try and drag down the whole piece. And I'm sure they'll try and do the same thing here. Uh, but uh, but um, we're not really worried about that. We welcome the debate.
1: It's a wonderful film. Uh, thank you for speaking to me. Uh, I hope it does extremely well, especially in its forthcoming run at the Film House. Um, Paul Laverty, thank you for speaking to me.
2: A great pleasure Jim and and uh, it's and thanks for your interest in your in and your really sharp questions. Really enjoyed this conversation with you.
1: Thank you.
0: So that's it for our November edition. Um, We have, um, by by the time this this is broadcasted, we would have just uh, done one of our first, uh, Cinetopia would have just done one of our first family-friendly screenings of musicals at Lee Theater, uh, Singing in the Rain. Um, And the next one for that will be uh, December 8th, White Christmas. Um, But we are having a Cinetopia uh, cinema night um, with the famous and romantic comedy big on the 27th of uh, november so check out that and stay tuned to um our next networking night should be announced quite shortly jim what's going on with you
1: um so i mean continuing to write about film as is my want okay. um so i think the, the next thing that I've, I've got in mind that i, I found out about and. Um, Noticed recently is uh, cinematic. Cinematic are doing the Scottish Catalan Film Festival. Oh
0: yeah, that looks amazing. Uh,
1: so that starts at the end of the month and then it runs until I think December eighth, something like mm-hmm. that. Um, so I'll be going to a few of those events, writing about some of those films. It looks like it should probably be a pretty strong program. Uh, it's a very interesting region for cinema anyway, because the um, so much of the Cambridge Film Festival that I was at last month, they always have a Catalan strand. I think I'll probably be checking that out.
0: Well, that sounds great, and hopefully. we'll all get to go to that as well Um, so yeah, that wraps us up Cynotopia, well this month's episode has been produced by Jim Ross, uh, managing editor of Take One Magazine and myself Amanda Rogers, um, co-founder of Cynotopia. and if you want to uh, learn more about us, uh, we're at Cynotopia on Twitter and at Cynotopia Hub on Instagram and Facebook, Um, so check that out and uh, see you next month